Welcome to this special sports edition of Podcast of Ideas. I'm Alistair Donald, and I'm joined by my Academy of Ideas colleagues, Jeff Kidder and Rob Lyons, and also by Hilary Salt and Simon McEwen, two of our regular speakers and session producers at our annual Battle of Ideas Festival, which I should add will be coming back live face-to-face events later in the year. More on that soon. Over the past week, football has hogged the headlines on the front as well as the back pages as plans for a new European Super League emerged and then collapsed almost in the blink of an eye. The headlines claim this has been the biggest fiasco in football history, the defeat of greed, and that elite sports has suffered its most astounding humiliation. In the space of six days, we've gone from initial rumours on Saturday and a muted formal announcement near midnight on Sunday through outraged reactions on Monday, climb-downs and withdrawals on Tuesday, and grovelling apologies on Wednesday. Today, Thursday, as we're recording this podcast, we seem to be in the recriminations phase amidst talk of punishing clubs, but also instituting longer-term changes. So, with the help of our guests, I'd like to try and make some sense of it all. And to start with, I think it's useful to dial back to the start and ask what are the roots of this initiative? Why has the European Super League suddenly emerged now, not least given the lack, evident lack of preparation and some might say a lack of commitment to pushing through change? So, Simon, if I can come to you first, any thoughts? Yeah, the idea of a European Super League has been bubbling up for, for you know, a few decades now, you know, 1998 and then in, in the 2000s. And by the same sorts of people, you know, Florentino Perez, chairman of Real Madrid, came up with the idea of 2009 and for various reasons that's that all died down I think it was just a, a cynical attempt by wealthy owners of very very big uh, football clubs uh, to take advantage of no fans being present on at stadiums to um, announce that they were now going to form a closed shop and I think they were just it just shows like the pure arrogance of them to go through, to, to expect that yes we can just go through it now take advantage all the little people are, are hiding but or are at home or or wherever and um, we can just get away with it. Hillary, anything to add? Yeah, so so I, I agree with Simon that this is not the first time that this is this has uh, risen its uh, ugly head. So the the idea of you know an elite bunch of clubs uh, having their own competition it, it, is not a new one. But I think it kind of feels that what's entered the ether as a result of it not proceeding is this idea that that bunch of elites has been beaten by the small man or the you know the the ordinary supporter and and that feels to me a bit different because I think in the past perhaps people were a bit more cynical about the fact that you know there would be a fight between you know two bits of the elite and one one faction would win over another and 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 perhaps what feels a bit different to me this time is this idea that it's a a culture war I suppose you might say between you know ordinary people and, and, and the football elites. Jeff? Um, I agree very much with what's been said, and I very much agree with Simon's point about the absence of the public and the fact that the public are absent from much of life at the moment with the COVID restrictions, and particularly absent from football uh, and not even allowed to be there. And in fact, even the small, I mean, we may go on to discuss this, but even the small protest, the, the, the Real Madrid chairman, his ire was directed even small protests of Chelsea fans who he said were planted there to protest against the thing, which obviously the opposite is the case because if it hadn't been for the absence of uh, of fans due to the COVID restrictions, there would have been, I would have thought, thousands of people all over the country protesting. But having said that, the fact that just ordinary people did that 
it made a big difference. And I think that's important. And I think I've seen quite a lot of what I would slightly cynical commentary saying, oh, it was one elite against another or UEFA are as bad as Florentina Perez. And obviously this fault with lots of people. But I think, you know, this particularly hit a nerve with ordinary fans who reacted very strongly. And obviously the government got involved for whatever their own purposes. But I think the fact that ordinary fans en masse got involved, you know, was very important in reaction. In terms of what's happened, I very much agree with the description of, of, of Simon and Hillary. Rob, supporter of Liverpool, one of the big <laughs> bad six. What do you say? Well, I mean, I, I think that the fan power has been very important, but I don't think it's it's only been down to that. I think it's been the complete opposition of practically everybody in football uh, to it as well. So um, I, I thought, well, you know, Gary Neville's comments went went round on social media uh, a lot. Uh, we saw James Milner after Monday's game, Liverpool game against Leeds, basically saying, I, I don't want it. We had Pep Guardiola saying it's not sport if you can't lose. Um, so within the game as well, there's been a, a, a lot of pushback and obviously some of the threats as well um, have, have been a, a problem for uh, everybody involved. The idea that players might not be able to take part in the World Cup or the European Championships and things like this as well. I mean, the thing it really reminded me of was um, Kerry Packer back in the 1970s when having failed to get the, the television rights for Australian Test cricket, he decided to create a breakaway tournament of his own and basically pay top dollar to all the players to, to come along, all of whom you know were, were then you know banned from cricket for various reasons. And the ultimate effect of all that was that, in a way, Packer sort of changed the, the, the course of cricket, really, and, and, and very much professionalised it and turned it into a, you know, a, a serious game with serious money floating around rather than cricketers retiring and opening a sports shop kind of thing. It became a much bigger deal, as we've seen with the Indian Premier League. So there's there's precedent for this kind of thing, whereas Pac had the balls to go through with it. And very quickly, the the leading some of the leading lights in this backed off from it. It seems like some of them weren't very keen to start with, like Man City and Chelsea. And that once they got a whiff of the fact that there was going to be so much controversy around it, they 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 turned tail. They weren't that keen on it anyway. And Bayern Munich and PSG never signed up to it at all. So it's, I think it's, there's, it's obviously more than just fan power. The fan power is also important, and also debt. I mean, I mean, a lot of these clubs, Real Madrid and Barcelona in particular, have really suffered financially uh, with coronavirus. So that's really brought things to a head for them. They've always been had massive debts, but now they, they're, they're really, really struggling, and that's why they were prepared to take that risk even more so than uh, in previous times. I think. Well, I, I wanted to pick up on the the Kerry Packer thing and and, and this whole idea of of um, that uh, I think is dominant in Australia and America and and one of the things that the criticisms of this new initiative has been that it's a kind of denial of the meritocracy of of sport and of uh, teams being able to qualify for competitions and situations. And Jeff, I I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Is would this have been a real shift in 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 those terms? And if so, would it have been a problem? I mean, some people I've seen on 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 Twitter and other places, for example, would say, "Well, it's no different from the Six Nations rugby, or it's no different from American football, and they survive perfectly well." So, would this have been a shift, and would it have been a problem? I think. Well, I think particularly in the UK and in England, football is a football is the national sport, and it's ubiquitous in a way that 
uh, and internationally as well, in, in a way that rugby isn't. So that's different. I also think that if you look at America or there's other parts of the world, different countries have their own rules and they have drafts or whatever in terms of getting players in. They have other ways of, of equalising things. You know, so I don't think you can necessarily just compare. I think you have to look at it in its own terms. And historically, I mean, everybody said it, but there's a pyramid in football from the top to the bottom. And there's there's a truth to that. There's also a truth to the fact that over the years, it's become harder to break into the upper echelons of that and harder to get into to various levels. But formally, all that has been the, the case. People say, yes, well, only Leicester City have got in in the last 10 years or something. But the fact is that Leicester City did get in in the last 10 years, and that's a significant thing. And that's still quite a symbolic you know, event, and that could happen to other teams. So I think on the one hand, that that's important. And I, so I do think what was proposed was different, which is having a league, which even though formally there was supposed to be a bit of relegation, you had a number of founding members who couldn't be relegated or promoted. And to me, that's different. And that's not surprising... I don't want to be too offensive to people in Madrid, but Real Madrid has a sense of entitlement in football terms, unlike any other club team in the world uh, for, from the from the days of the, of the 1950s to today. And it's not surprising their current president can't see any issue with them having an entitlement. As he kept talking about the important clubs are in there, as if all the other clubs were not important clubs. And so even though things have changed over the years and Sky TV's come in, you know, money's come in in different ways. Owners have come in who've got no connection with the areas of, of, of the clubs they're owning from. This really does take it to another level. And if you're a football fan, that dream, or it's 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 like it's just being it's like being the 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 rug being pulled away from underneath you. Or the and people have that natural reaction against it, which I think is a, a very healthy reaction. And I felt I was very angry myself. And have been all week, as people will know, who know me, in a way that I'm often not that bothered. But I was very angry. And I, so I do think there was something different in this. OK, Simon, to come to you, because you're a, a supporter of perhaps, should we say, one of the less fashionable uh, clubs uh, <laughs> around just now and and uh, not in the in the top league. So how did you feel about that? I'll put it on record. You know, I, I, I follow Queen's Park Rangers and used to have a season ticket when they let us in. Great thing about being a footballer, uh, a football fan rather, and supporting someone from the lower league is hope. You know, we all hope that our team will be uh, promoted into the Premier League. And then once we get there, we all hope that we'll finish top six and we can cr- claim some of that glory of what it's like to, be, to, to win the Champions League or UEFA Cup or, 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 or whatever it is. In, in taking that away, I, I did feel a real, like Jeff says, a real sense of anger and about that that opportunity being taken away uh, uh, from me and from other other supporters of, of 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 lower league clubs. That that idea that we can strive for something and, and win it at the expense of the you know the more elite clubs. 
Okay, so I, I want to come on and, and just to look at why it did collapse so quickly, actually. I mean, people have all, already mentioned things like like fan power and so on and so forth. And Hillary, as one of the uh, prawn sandwich brigade, uh, old Baffer, <laughs> um, I wondered uh, the extent to which you brought, uh, you thought that fan power played a, a, a part in this because, on you know, on the one hand, there was demonstrations outside the grounds at Leeds the other night at Chelsea and, 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 and other places places and there seemed a, a genuine sense of anger actually very striking I think because football fans have been so absent from football uh, we've re- been reduced to PlayStation crowd noise over the past uh, year for anybody watching football so to what extent did that make a difference and perhaps were the players an important aspect of it as well? Yeah I, I don't know if you've read um, Joel Glazer's uh, groveling apology to the fans Um which interesting is in an open letter, which obviously has gone to the people that they see as their fans, which I think are the kind of global TV audience, not not necessarily uh, season ticket holders. I've, I've received nothing as a, a season ticket holder uh, uh, separately to that. Um, but but he, he talks a lot in there about the football pyramid, and, and you know you, I kind of think that you know clearly he didn't write that. So so you know it, it is I think clear that the reaction they got was a surprise and as you say not just from fans but from politicians from players and ex-players from the um, media um, it, it was a really big backlash but I was still surprised at how quickly they collapsed because you would have thought that you know they'd have put a, a lot of thought into you know all the the media responses to all that and, and they'd have had you know very clear answers and the fact that they didn't kind of it's, I still have a nagging doubt at the back of my mind as to whether they were really serious about this or whether they were just flying a kite and the way that perhaps they've done in the past as a way to kind of turn the screws to make sure they get more uh, from the the current setup than, than being absolutely fixed on on, on going ahead with this but to, to get back to your, your, your question I mean it, it, it's right that because lockdown has kind of purged the game of fans I, I think you know ordinary football fans do think we need to find ways of making our voice heard and I think you know some of those were quite were quite effective and, and there's an extent to which I don't I don't know if other people share this but I kind of feel a bit complicit in all this in that you know we've taken everything so far we've taken VAR, we've taken the blooming taking the knee, we've taken them, t- you know, turning our stadiums into open prisons, and and it does kind of feel like you've been pushed to the stage where you you really do need to do something, and, and I think that's that's part of the the reason why the backlash was quite so fierce, uh, and why you know it was it was I think you know a bandwagon that people like. Boris Johnson is is very good at spotting those opportunities. Jumped on that very quickly, didn't he? Well, come to Rob, opportunism by the politicians, Rob, or did you think that they did a reasonable job? Well, I just think that yeah, they they sensed the mood, they sensed that um, that this was going to be wildly unpopular, and that it was a good way of positioning themselves on the right side of the debate and very much against what they would normally do. You know, when they're when they're trying to save the local steelworks, generally speaking, that they go, oh, it's a, it's a matter for the market and all that sort of stuff, and they don't get involved. And it, you know, there's a there's a clip from uh, Boris Johnson from the mid noughties on Question Time about Manchester United being bought by the Glazers and, and saying very much that you know it's a it's at the end of the day it's a 
private matter between the, sh- the shareholders, as far as he was concerned, and nothing to do with the government. And and I, I, I am a bit nervous about the idea that the government should start interfering in how the, the game of football is played. I mean, they do enough of that already in terms of you know how fans are treated and whatever. But I think that they, but nonetheless, I think they they pick the right side in this one, and the the, the clubs, the leading lights in this, uh, seem to be Real Madrid and Juventus, really. Uh, absolutely to pick the wrong moment to go over the top, you know, and without the backing of, of some of the other elite clubs in Europe, as I mentioned, like Bayern Munich and PSG, they were always going to be in a fairly weak position and hoping they could push it through as a fait accompli and completely misunderstood, you know, underestimated the opposition that would be to it. Simon, I, I wondered what to, to what extent you thought the governing bodies, the likes of UEFA and, and what have you, made a difference. I mean, they've been people that for years have been criticised as being on the wrong side, and yet all of a sudden it seems rather strangely like they're on the right side. So a turnaround for them? Uh, yeah, I think they were just annoyed that they weren't consulted. You know, uh, we've had a previous team when this has happened, you know, UEFA or FIFA have been complicit in adapting Europe, uh, competitions in Europe. And, you know, this this time around, the elite clubs of Europe uh, got together, decided what they wanted to do. I didn't really include, did it all behind closed doors behind uh, UEFA's back. And they got a bit pissed off by it and thinking, well, you know, you didn't consult us. You, you, you've gone your way. You know, this, this is not on. What really surprised me, I'll just come back to what Rob was saying. What really surprised me was the react the reaction by the government. I mean, in contrast, like with Kerry Packer in the nineteen seventies, you know, with Oliver Dowden saying, you know, they'll do what uh, whatever it takes to protect the game, and all this talk of legislative bomb. That's all new, you know. You know, the government saying that they they would <laughs> prevent players from transfers. You know, they won't pay for for police and all that thing. That that really surprised me. Jeff, um, pick up on anything you like, but I think it's been interesting, some of the political discussion on this. I mean, on one hand, people are attempting to say that this is uh, the sign, for example, of a new interventionist government, not not just in football, but more broadly speaking, an ethos of interventionism. On the other hand, there's a more sort of libertarian perspective, which argues that, well, actually, this is complete opportunism. The government particularly didn't make a difference. The whole thing would have collapsed anyway without uh, Boris Johnson taking the lead or Oliver Dowden coming in and saying things. So kind of where do you stand on some of these things? I would say, tangentially on your question, I would say that, the, as people have said, that Oliver Dowden and Boris Johnson, the, the Tories, but the government, British government particularly, were very quick, as Simon said, they're very quick to anticipate what the mood was going to be, that there was going to be a big reaction, and they rode that wave very well. What their motivations individually, obviously Boris Boris Johnson's spokesman came out and said, look, he's not a football fan, but he's not going to let this happen, which was actually quite a smart thing to say. They handled it very well. They handled it in relation to UEFA, who they were, the more you read, the more closely they were in touch with the European governing bodies. The, the tone, they, particularly when you, the UK has just left the EU and you have the EU politicians who are tone deaf year in and year out, and you see the people who run the European football organisation, UEFA, actually being able to speak in a way that people here can connect with very quickly. And you think, yeah, it's it's not that difficult, really. And so I think the, the British government uh, did that. Um, and I think they understood 
uh, and this point, other point I would make, that this was a, an important moment in terms of people reacting about something they felt very passionately, very strongly, that was being taken away from them. And so often when I hear commentators saying, oh, well, the Super League was always going to fail, but why don't people complain about racism in football or VAR or wokeism in football or something else? To me, that just misses the point because... Okay, there's other problems in football. I don't dispute that. But this was an important moment where people felt something was being taken away from them. And as Hillary said, maybe it was so weak, it was always going to fail. Maybe we'll never know. But I think the fact that people reacted in their millions in different ways in the way that they did was significant in and of itself. And the fact that it failed is significant in and of itself. And we need to recognise that. And that Yes, there's other things we can go on to discuss what should happen in football, but there are other things that should be discussed separately, not just all thrown in the same pot. Rob, do you think there are any deeper sort of cultural and political resonances of this? I mean, I see claims and counterclaims uh, in every article that I read, whether it's uh, claiming that football's lost its working class roots or someone saying it's a reassertion of them. Um, there's the whole epitomized by the back page of the sun today which is this kind of united snakes of america it's all the foreigners the franchises and all the rest of it there's there's this kind of this is a new moment of political intervention and shoring up working class sports or whatever i mean what are the deeper implications of this do you think well i mean obviously the last couple of decades um the english premier league is in effect you know and with apologies to Spain and Italy and whatever. The English Premier League has become the World League. Uh, a friend of mine was living in Singapore for a while and he made the point that yeah, the NBA is the World League of, of basketball and the English Premier League is the World League of, of football. And so, and all of the clubs that have come through, by and large, in the past few years, or have, have sustained dominance, have been bought by foreign owners and managed by foreign managers. And it's it's very much a kind of league that happens on English soil. But other than that, in many ways, isn't particularly English at all. And we've kind of all gone along with that, really, as, as uh, uh, those of us who are fans of the big six, because it's a big money game. And so uh, I, I think that it's right to reassert that there, there should be some kind of route into um, why Liverpool is... A football team in Liverpool, and um, you know, and, and has some sort of relationship with with the city and with all, all the other um, uh, clubs is exactly the same. I mean, there is something about this discussion that's been going on about heritage that they, you know, that there is something about um, a foot, your local football team that is a bit distinct from any other kind of entertainment business or whatever. It is actually has some very clear roots, and that maybe the, the, the plain old rules of the market and whoever's got the deepest pockets can buy your club. Maybe that shouldn't stand in the same way as it has done for the past 20 or 30 years, even if that means that less money is flowing into the game or whatnot, what that maybe the, there needs to be a pushback against that that model in some way. Yeah, I, I just get a little bit worried that, that we start to, to, you know, sound like romantics harking back to this, this age when, you know, football wasn't about, wasn't a big business. And, you know, I, I think I don't think it's changed that much. You know, for football has been a big business for a long time, and clearly the number of notes on the end of everything has increased. But but it, you know, it's not been a 
community-owned business for, for a long time. And I don't think we should get, get too... Um, kind of teary-eyed about the fact that you know something's changed in the in the in the near past because you know it, it hasn't you know football has been a big business but at the same time I do think there's a clear issue around those owners who who do have you know ownership of the different franchises in all the different countries who who kind of do imagine that you can transplant a, a business model that works somewhere else to to English football and make it work in the same way and you know you can't and and it's it's good that they've kind of been taught a lesson that that that, that doesn't work Edward Woodward going is obviously uh one of the good things that comes out of this from my point of view uh I was quite disappointed actually <laughs> I hoped he'd hang around with you lot a bit longer but Simon are you just an old football romantic and uh kind of clinging on to the past with uh, not recognising that football needs to to kind of move in some way with the times? No, I, I'm, I'm a little bit of a romantic. You know, as part of being a football fan, you have a little bit of romance uh, there. Um, no, and, and obviously money coming into the game uh, has has improved, has, has improved things. You know, stadiums are, are, are a lot better now. You know, we don't get have muddy pitches towards the end of the season. Sky, the whole presentation of football now is a lot more improved than, than it used to be. But we don't need to compromise what's great about football, you know, the competition, the idea of, of risk. You know, these, you know, if you're an owner, you can put in millions of pounds into in, into football and hope that you'll get promotion, but there's no guarantee. And, and that's, that's the great thing about football is that element of, of risk, both for the fans and don't know, the guys that own, own um, football teams. Okay, I want to come on and and uh, finish up with uh, just a look into the future because obviously there's a lot of discussion in the papers and everywhere just now about what the potential ramifications are of this, whether Big Six are, for example, going to be marginalised within the the UK setup, whether there's going to be new leagues, there's even rumours of a new kind of European league style Premier League with Rangers and Celtic coming in, whether UEFA are back in control and it's just going to be a kind of return to business as usual. Um, In fact, there's already moves to make the Champions League next season part qualified by the big clubs who don't, you know, irrespective of where they finish in the league. So kind of any thoughts on what uh, might be the ramifications of this and where we're going? Rob? The, the one thing that struck me uh, was that um, the threat of a European Super League has always been the thing that's been able for the big clubs to sort of drive through changes. It's been their leverage. So right from the creation of the Champions League and all that, it's like the, the idea. I mean, because everybody remember when people were laughing about the Champions League because they started including people who weren't champions. So it was this idea that, yeah, the the Big clubs and the in the big football nations um, could use their leverage to get these things, and I think that this may have shut their bolt for quite a while, actually, because that everybody's seen what the reaction is to it now, and um, they will uh, back right off from these threats for a few years. I think. I hope that there's not sort of some kind of like bloodletting now, and like you know, Liverpool and Manchester United players don't get to play for England, or you know, there's some some kind of punishment is ensues but I think that the, um, I think UEFA are much more in charge and I think it probably would be a good thing to have a bit more qualifying a little bit less seeding a little bit more 
champions from every country having a fairer crack at the whip and all that sort of stuff to make it feel much more like a, a, a genuinely meritocratic and European game rather than being dominated more and more by the big countries. If that happened, well, I think that that's probably a good thing for football and it allows the uh, odd um, uh, you know, upstart team to get through like Nicosia or, or Porto winning it um, a few years ago, things like that. That would be good for uh, the game rather than the same tiny select elite clubs uh, dominating things. Obviously, I don't trust UEFA on any of this, of course. Yeah, even Chelsea managed to win it a few years ago. Jeff, um, what do you think? Well, I would say, firstly, I'm more bothered. People are worried about the institutional and the, you know, the, what the governing bodies are doing, and I'm more worried about the fans. And I think Simon's point about football is great. And you see articles, people saying, "Oh, Sky have done this, and there's all this money, and it's all these wealthy owners, and now there's this, and I'm so cynical and given up on football." And the point about this week is there are millions of people particularly obvious in the UK and being praised by European football fans as well, who are still very passionate and love football. And whatever the changes are, they want to watch it and whatever. And I think that is important. And I think knocking the cynics is good. I think the most important thing isn't any of this other stuff. You know, there's an argument for the German model. There's an argument that there's a real problem with oligarchs owning football clubs. I don't dispute that. But to me, the most important thing is that, the, and, and the reason this thing happened this week to start with, is that the fans are not allowed to go into the grounds and the fans are absent. And I get that there's a problem with COVID and it has to be managed carefully and all the rest of it. But I think the sooner fans can get back to discussing in person with each other, going to matches, getting that relationship going, the, 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 the better it is. And they can't be just dismissed as legacy fans, as was the attempt early this week. And I can say, this is the last comment I make here, uh, you know, this weekend I won't be drinking as a legacy fan to the end of the Super League, which has gone and good riddance to it. I will be drinking to the relegation of Bristol Rovers as a Bristol City (laughs) something that's almost been confirmed and will be confirmed this weekend. And I'm, you know, that is what, it's those rivalries, it's those passions, it's the what happens on the pitch, which which motivates people in football. Uh, and, and that's, to me, the most important thing. And the sooner those things can come back and that rhythm of football life can return, uh, uh, even with all its flaws, the, the better for all of us. Simon, what are you going to be drinking to this weekend? Well, I tell you what, I won't be drinking to. I won't be drinking to Tracy Crouch's uh, fan-led review that looks at, you know, on governance and looks at this idea that, you know, that we can somehow copy the the German model that is where where fans uh, have the have the say. What what really concerns me about that is that Tracy Crouch won't look into what really affects fans at football matches: the football banning orders from the um, Football Spectators Act. If you go to a football match, you cannot drink while watching the game. You can if you're a rugby fan. You can't if you're a football fan. Consumption of alcohol, you know, football banning orders uh, uh, and all of that kind of uh, stuff. So I won't be drinking to that. I think what I will be drinking to is QPR finishing eighth in the championship. So I mean, we're expected to, put, to, to be relegated this season. So that's, that's, that's what I'll be drinking to. What a celebration that's going to be. Um, uh, on German model of ownerships or anything else that you want? 
I think I, I would just agree with Jeff. I think I think a bigger issue than the rise and fall of the European Super League is the exclusion of fans from stadiums and how how that has had effect on an effect on not just the game, but you know things like the 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 kind of sanitisation and and making into a TV spectacle of football and the fact that you know. It's it's interesting that that you know that commentators haven't been able to tut tut over you know a, a mini pitch invasion or anything. So you know what they witter about in the in the breaks is things like racist tweets. You know they they can't they can't help themselves talking about how horrible football fans are even when they're not there. And I think what we need to do is to think of ways in which we can use the kind of enthusiasm that has been generated in fans over the, the past few weeks to to think about you know is there a way we can harness that to 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 really push for getting fans back into football excellent okay i think the thing that i've enjoyed most the last week is this thought that the european super league is some equivalent of the eu and what's happening <laughs> Is uh, our equivalent, our football fans' equivalent of Brexit, which seems to me to be <laughs> nice, um, maybe over exaggerated, but still quite a nice way of looking at it because it just seems to me that the fans have re emerged, football supporters have re emerged into the picture of football, uh, having been absent for an entire year, which has been an absolute tragedy, in my opinion. So I can, you just wish that uh, the, the cup final this weekend was open to 90,000 people rather than 4,000 or whatever it was going to be but the sooner we get back into grounds and everybody uh ensuring that football becomes part of the people who want to enjoy it again rather than just fed in through television screens then that will be uh the point at which it really returns i think anyway that's all uh, we've got time for now um thanks to simon and hillary Jeff and Rob, uh, for all your thoughts. It's been an interesting half hour, I think. We'll be back with Podcast of Ideas very soon, so do tune in, uh, subscribe to, to us on your favourite podcast feed, and we'll see you again soon. <laughs>